Thank you for tuning in. My prayer is that this message is going to be an encouragement to you personally and will cause great growth in your life. It's time to live and it's time to take this next step forward. God bless you as you listen. Welcome to church in the house of God. You guys can have a seat in here in the foyer. And if you're even standing up at home, you can sit down now. You can stand. I don't care. You can do, you can work out at home while you're doing that. It'd be kind of weird in here, but uh, but it's so good to see you guys. What a, what a beautiful day it is today. Man, I tell you what, I'm just telling you guys, it feels good to be over COVID, man. I was saying that I, I now have the COVID antibodies, which means I can like roll in the dirt and do whatever I want. It's going to feel good. Actually, it already does feel good. Uh, just to let you know, my lungs are expansive and uh, and I have more energy than you desire to even experience. Uh, and I'm just grateful to God for it. I really, really am. Thank you guys for understanding. I hadn't gotten my test results back last Sunday, so I decided to not be here because I dis because I had had a fever. I didn't even have a fever last Sunday, but I did have a fever prior to that, and it just felt like I had some flu symptoms, and uh, really that's all that happened. I had symptoms for about uh, three days, and then just bounced back. I have absolutely no symptoms now, and I haven't had fever in eight days, so hey, thank God for that, amen? Yeah, so they say, hey, well, you can get back out and get in people's faces now. I, I reopened my gym membership. It was kind of fun. Yeah, I went to the gym yesterday and I said, come on. And I, as some, they're, they're like, there were like 10 people in the whole big place. And, and so this one guy, he looked at me, he goes, well, you seem happy today. I said, of course I'm happy. And, and uh, I told him why. He said, well, I'd be happy too if I were in your shoes. Well, it feels good. It does feel good. But I want to welcome you guys to church. Uh, As we're preparing for God's Word, I also encourage you to prepare your offerings. Your giving, according to the Word of God, helps to provide food, which is the Word of God primarily, to get out not only to this church, but to the nations as well. And that's what this ministry does. So I encourage you to go ahead and prepare your offerings. If you have yet to do so, please do so. Thank you to those of you who already give through through the recurring giving. You can give through the City Life app if you'll download that. I think there's a number there on the screens, the 77977, you type City Life. I don't even know. Text City Life after that. You can get it set up that way. Also, you can give through the giving station located out in the lobby or for your home. You can go onto your computer online and do it as well there at City Life after. W.org. While you're preparing your offerings, thank you again so much for your giving. While you're preparing your offerings, just uh, just to let you know, uh, we have now begun to reopen our nursery, and the nursery is open for the first Sunday today. I'm asking you. I need I need several individuals who would be willing to serve, even just one or maybe two Sundays a month on a rotation. Here's the way to do that: is you'll just please go over there to the uh, to that wall right after right after the service and let us know that you're interested in nursery. We do need uh, several people just to serve, maybe once or twice a month. That's it, and uh, and. And, and we're going to slowly be reopening our children's ministries over the next several weeks. So excited for that. And uh, also, just to let you know, tonight is prayer. Uh, Elizabeth and I, we're going to be leading a time of prayer along with elders here at, at uh, 6 p.m. right here. It's going to be live. It's going to be our first live and in-person prayer meeting, not over Zoom, but live and in-person uh, since uh, since all this stuff began. And I'm just, I'm, I'm ready. I'm glad to be be able to do that. There's something about God's people literally coming together physically. 
And that's really what this is going to be about. So that's tonight at what time? Good. See, you guys knew without me even saying it. All right. Tonight at 6 right here. Uh, so look forward to that time of worship and prayer. Ah, man, you can just get in a corner and pray, and, or you can just stand up and walk and pray. It'll be, it'll be a fantastic time of seeking God. All right. Uh, before we go, though, into the message, I want us to, I do want to offer one more prayer. I want us to pray for, uh, pray for the, the American West Coast. The, the fires that are out there. I have a lot of family who lives out that in that direction, and so many of them are sending me articles about the arsonists that are starting these fires. It's not out there in the media very much, but these are these are arson-oriented fires. People are are literally burning down uh, Washington, Oregon, California. It's it's just it's very very difficult. Uh, you know, so my family that's out there that lives out in Oregon, they're just saying, you know, the, the smoke in their homes is, is just unbearable. So we need to pray for that. We also just need to continue praying for Victor Ronquillo, part of City Life Church. He is still in the hospital in El Paso. He's having a slow recovery from his heart attack. It's, a, it's mostly a, a, like some type of, a, of an interaction with the, uh, with, with the, I don't know, the medicine they used to put him under or whatever that's called, but, but it was just, he's, he's having kind of a reaction to that still, so we just need to continue to pray for Victor. Let's pray. Let's pray right now. God, we just pray for, for Victor. God, again, he would be right here right now if, if he was able to be, be here, but we extend our prayers to him all the way on the other side of this great state of Texas to El Paso. Pray for your healing in his body. Let him rise up and strengthen and healing. God, we also pray for the West coast of the United States. We pray for, uh, for our friends and family members. Pray for churches out there. Pray for people, Lord. We pray that, uh, that you will send protection. God, I, I ask, Lord, that you just send massive rainstorms to the West Coast, God. God, just wipe out these, these fires and, and, as, and even the spirit of, I don't even know what to call it, but the spirit of arson, the spirit of lawlessness that comes to, to burn and destroy. We come against that, for we know that the word is clear. Satan only comes to steal kill and destroy. When we see destruction, we know it's the work of hell. So we come against that in the name of Jesus, and we pray for there to be an extension of the life and the power of God through that part of the country. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Today, I encourage you to get your notes out. Uh, be ready to write down several things. I have a little bit of a lengthy introduction here before I dive into the sermon portion today. Uh, but my sermon is, is entitled, it's part of my Overcoming the World series, so that's actually the, the title of the series. But today's message is called Forsaking Worldly Practices. I'm talking to you again from the book of Revelation, focusing on an address that Jesus gave to the seven churches, to seven different churches that were located in Asia Minor. And, uh, I, and it's important you hear what I'm saying here, because this is important that we set this up correctly, that what, was, uh, what he was saying to them, these were literal churches he was speaking to, but it is contained in the book of Revelation, which means it is indicative and it is directed to us, the end of the age church as well. So what he says to them, he's saying to us. All right, can I say it again? What he says to them, he's saying to us. 
This all started in Revelation chapter 1. In fact, I'd like you, if you'd go ahead and get your Bibles up in Revelation chapter 1, I want you to see how this started off in Revelation 1.9. It's just utterly incredible. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering of, and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was in prison, basically on a, this Roman um, Alcatraz island. On the Lord's Day, which means Sunday, so it's Sunday, it's church day, and he says, I was in the spirit. Just to let you know what that is. He's, that means he's just worshiping God. He's swept away in the presence of God on the Lord's Day. And this is, a, this is what we need to make sure we're always doing, get swept away in the presence of God. You never know what God might do in those settings. That's what I want for you for church. I want that for you to for you to be able to even do that personally but he says it was on the lord's day and i was in the spirit and i heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches and then he lists them he says to ephesus smyrna pergamum thyatira sardis philadelphia and laodicea I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We learn later that those seven golden lampstands represent the churches. <laughs> Beautiful. You're a lampstand. You are a lampstand. I could just preach on that the whole time, but I'm not supposed to today, all right? And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Oh my goodness, it says that he walks amongst the lampstands. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God walks amongst us today. He says he's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool. As eyes, his, and white as snow, his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Can you imagine? That, my friend, is an encounter with God. In his right hand, he held seven stars. The seven stars that he holds in his right hand, we learn later, those are the seven pastors of these churches, these seven, uh, call, also called seven angels, or these, these, mean, these are not, these are literal people. These are the people who lead and preach and, and would full, fulfill the role of similar to what we would call pastor today. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. I, I, I cannot imagine what an incredible moment that would be. That got John's attention. And John began to write what he saw and what he heard. Powerful Sunday morning encounter with God. Let it be in our lives as well. Really, my prayer more than anything during this, city is, during this series is, Jesus, give me a revelation of you. I want a revelation of Jesus. In fact, will you pray that prayer with me right now? Just pray that prayer with me. 
Jesus, I want a revelation of you. Come on, pray it again. Jesus, give us a revelation of you. Today, I want to experience Jesus, his truth and his spirit and his life. I want to experience the conviction of God. I want to indulge and engage in and enjoy the rewards of his spirit. Now, the context of today's message is really found in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 says this. It says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather, what does it say? Expose them. Today is about exposing fruitless deeds of darkness. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not our own, okay? It says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The devil is doing schemes. He's working, scheming, manipulating, deceiving. That's what he does, lies. He takes the truth. He twists it to make things out that are happening that never really were happening. He says, and look at this. Come on. It goes on to say, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's not against individuals. Our struggle is against, look, rulers and authorities and against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those are all different rankings of demonic forces that we fight against. I am not fighting against a person. I am not fighting against you. I am not fighting against, I am fighting against hell and I'm asking you to fight against hell as well in your life. Today you're gonna see an ancient twisting of political and satanic occult practices. And these warnings are given to us as the end of the age church through the book of Revelation. You see, the final work of Satan on this earth is going to be the establishment of a religious, political, and economic system. This is no new news to any of you guys. It's going to be ruled by the Antichrist, who's also known as the man of anarchy, the man of lawlessness, and also by the false prophet. This is going to be a very, very evil, dark system. Uh, It's going to be focused upon worshiping and idolizing this political figure, all right? It will mask itself as an economic system. No new news to any of us. This has been taught in the church for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. Some people say, can't talk about politics in church. Well, the Bible is full of it, okay? Did you hear me? Not full of it. You know know what I mean? You, You guys know what I mean, all right? It's full of talking about this stuff. It's a very, very dark system. And, uh, I'm telling you guys, what will come, we're not there yet, but what will come, and it will come, it is deeply demonic, and the scriptures tell us it comes from Satan himself, and it is so potent that even believers, some believers will even be deceived by this. It involves the spirit of anarchy and the spirit of lawlessness, which is where people begin to call good evil, and they begin to call evil good. Now, 
This will also result in martyrdom and death sentences for Christians. And the goal of all this, the satanic goal of all this, is is to create an artificial peace where everyone is happily pursuing life where Christianity doesn't exist and the traditions from the past are all nullified. This is prophesied all through the scriptures. No new news to you, right? All right. Actually, I began teaching on that at the Timothy 12 back in March, and, uh, and I'm excited because I'm starting my new Tim at 12 fall season, just a little commercial for that, Start, it starts off this Wednesday at noon, once a week on Wednesdays at noon, and my theme this time is called Understanding the False Religion of Marxism. It is a religion you will hear, please don't send me your messages about how I'm wrong before you've heard a word that I've said. I'm tired. I've been called a racist this week uh, because I'm going to preach about this. Like, what the? You know, I, I just, I, but I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uncover a demonic evil that lies beneath this charade of economic justice. And, it, and it's this unholy inspiration that is behind communism, socialism, and Nazism that has brought the death of, of literally millions, untold millions of people, uh, estimated over the past 120 years, somewhere between 140 and 160 million people have lost their lives because of this unholy philosophy. It's all about the worship of a state and the worship of man himself. The goal of all this is to bring in a millennium. Did you know that? Yeah, it's about a millennium. They're going to usher in a millennium of peace and prosperity where all forms of authority police are eliminated, where God is taken out of the picture and today the Marxist uh, utopians continue to promise a millennial reign of Christ. I mean, not of Christ, a millennial reign of man. And uh, in fact, it was a, uh, wasn't that what the Third Reich was about? The Thousand Year Reich? Huh? Some of you didn't even know that that's, that's all socialism. It promotes harmony and security, but it's deeply demonic, and it's from the occult. It's a little bit about Karl Marx. Karl Marx was a man ruled by darkness. I've done my research on him. I'm not an economist, but neither was he. I'm not going to talk about the economy stuff because I'm not an economist. And neither was he. His dad said he was governed by a demon. His son called him my dear devil. Engels co-wrote the Communist Manifesto with him. He said that, that Karl Marx was a monster of 10,000 devils. His wife called him wicked. Uh, his associates called, said that he was possessed. Richard Payne, he said, I quote, there were times when Marx seemed to be possessed by demons. He had the devil's view of the world and the devil's malignancy. Sometimes he seemed to know that he was accomplishing works of evil. Karl Marx himself wrote this. He says, thus heaven I forfeited, I know it full well. My soul once true to God, has been chosen for hell. His writings are dark, they are destructive, they are despairing, and he literally encouraged people to sell their souls to the devil and to do suicide pacts. And even his own two daughters did suicide pacts with their husbands. Karl Marx has the devil's view of the world, and I will boldly say that. In the Communist Manifesto, do you realize what was written in there? He and Engels say this. He said, the the communist openly declares that their ends can be attained only by the forcible 
overthrow of all existing social conditions. That means business, that means the church, that means the family. Do you understand? It means government. They go on to say communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. Basically, they even say that they're, they're basically into burning down the house. All right, now, I say that because I want you to know we are in a spiritual battle, and I am going to walk in obedience to God's word, and I will expose the fruitless works of darkness inspired by hell. Yeah. All right. Now, I want to give you, an, I'm still not starting my sermon. All right. Now, I want to give you a little bit of an understanding of what goes into writing a sermon. Because if you think I just come up here and start spouting off on something that I read on the internet, you ain't got a clue, all right? So, so please, please understand this. I want you to hear. I want you to understand. There are two different ways of approaching the scriptures. One's called inductive and the other is called deductive. I do not preach from an inductive standpoint. Inductive is this. It's where you start with an assumption, a theory, some, some idea that you have, and then you go to the scriptures and try to find scriptures to support it, and then you teach it. Now, I understand that, but please understand that if, you're, if, that if someone is doing their studying and their preaching from that standpoint, that's dangerous, and that's actually how cults get started. Good theologians do not start with what's called inductive study. Now, there's the other side of it, and those of you who've had theology training, you know all about this, and you're excited to hear, I guess, but it's called deductive. This is where you go to the scriptures first. A person who does deductive uh, research, they are actually in the scriptures all the time. And you'll study broad passages, and then you use something called exegesis and hermeneutics to determine what the scriptures meant originally, and then what they mean for us now. For a deductive study, that means what you do is you study a passage of scripture, you look for its primary message, and then you break it down into individual word studies, and then you do your deeper research but you have to balance it from the entire word of God. And then when you've done that, then you actually bring it forth with an application to contemporary culture. That is how to rightly divide the word of truth. A couple of months ago when I was doing my early stages of preparing to, uh, to do this series, what I did then is I read through the entire book of Revelation. Then I went back and I soaked in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. I began praying at that time, God, I want you to illuminate to me. I want to have an ear to hear what the Spirit said to the seven churches and what he's saying to us today. During that time, the Holy Spirit directed me to this passage I'm about to preach on today regarding Pergamum. And I felt very clearly that this was going to be potent and that what I said was going to be ridiculed. And uh, it, that is if I taught what I, what I actually found. Well, I have I, been candid with you. I originally thought that's just my imagination. That's ridiculous. I've, I've looked at this before and I read through it again. like, oh, whatever. That's my imagination. <laughs> but my deductive study of this passage we're about to read today took me to Berlin, to Nuremberg, Germany. It took me to Germany's National Socialist Party. It took me to uh, understanding some things about a former president of the United States. It took me actually to the spiritual roots of Marxism, which they even say comes from Pergamum. It all intertwines political, economic, demonic, religion, Revelation, the book of Revelation is given to us for a reason, and this story is in here for a reason. 
Now, the seven churches, they represent seven end-of-the-age challenges that we need to overcome. That's why I'm teaching it. It applies to us today. What was relevant to them then is relevant to us now, okay? Why? So that, not just so that we can have more data in our head, no, so that we can recognize things, hear what the Spirit is saying to our church, and we can overcome the world during the turbulence of the end of the age, Church of Pergamum, we find this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. Now it's time for the sermon. Now I'll tell you, there's a lot of cryptic stuff that's in this passage of scripture, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense unless you actually go into extensive research. But uh, the pastor and the church of Pergamum definitely would have understood every bit of this because God always speaks to a culture in a terminology that the culture understands, okay? You're going to hear things about Satan's throne, the place where Satan lives, Balaam, Balak, uh, Antipas, the Nicolaitans, and, and like, what is all this? Well, please know this. Because we do this deductive, all of this fits together. It must because it's all together. All of this fits together. It all intertwines then and it does now as well. It is actually one complete thought. You cannot separate one thing and pull it out or else you are no longer rightly dividing the word of truth through deductive study. Now, I'll just tell you, I was not looking for what I found. What I found was looking for me. Some of you have known me for a few months. Say, I don't know about that guy. Some of you, you've known me for 35 years. I know who you are, Dave. Uh Uh-huh. I know who some of you guys are. I wasn't looking for this. It found me. And so today I just simply stand up on my reputation, stand up on 35 years of ministry, stand up on my credentials as a theologian and a pastor. Let's preach. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. It says, To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Now, he's talking to the church, okay? He's not talking to the city. He's talking to the church. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches then and now. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. More cryptic stuff there. I will also give that person a white stone. More cryptic stuff. With a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So, if we're going to understand this, we need to break it down. So today I'm actually going to do a lot of the breaking down of this. Let's talk about Antipas. Antipas was the pastor uh, of the, who do we would call the pastor of the Pergamum church. He's not the star or the, the angel that, that Jesus is writing to. He had already perished. He'd already lost his life. Spoken of in verse 13. And uh, 
It's understood well that Antipas was actually a disciple of the Apostle John who, who was writing the uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, but he was roasted to death inside of, of what's known as the Sicilian bull. It's, it was a large bronze bull. It was often called the brazen bull. And it was hollow with a door. And what they would do is they would put a person who had a death sentence on them inside of it. They would build a fire underneath it, lock the door, and literally roast the person to death as the the smoke came out of the nostrils of the bull. This is how their pastor lost his life. This was done to Christians throughout the Roman Empire at that time. Why did this happen? Well, Pastor Antipas did not offer an incense to Caesar, who was actually Nero, not a very good guy. He didn't offer incense to them, so they made his body incense and burned him. Smoke from his body literally rose to the nostrils of the bull as an incense, not really to Nero, but it was to demon gods from the Pergamum altar. Many Christians also suffered a loss of life this way. Uh, please understand, martyrdom will increase at the end of time, at the, the very end. It's, it's already in the Word. But as long as we're not afraid of that, <laughs> you will be overcomers. Don't be afraid of this. This is all written in the book of Revelation for a reason. Now, There's a second one. It says, where Satan lives. And this is found at the end of verse 13. It says, your city, which is the city of Pergamum, where Satan lives. Uh, I understand that uh, Pergamum was actually one of the most influential cities of that day. Um, It's nothing but ruins today. But it was one of the most significant cities in that part of the Roman Empire. It is, uh, it is said throughout secular uh, research that, that it had the second largest library in the ancient world highly educated people, but it was a very, very dark and evil city. They had four pagan temples in that city, not one like most cities did. And they also had a a fifth item, which was called the Pergamum altar. Jesus says that it's the place where Satan lives. It says this is where Satan felt at home. In other words, Satan was the master of this city, just to get a glimpse of this, they, one of the, their features in that city was an occult healing center. People came throughout the Roman Empire who were sick. They would spend the night in this occult dungeon, uh, for lack of a better term. They would drink a solution, they would be drugged, and they would be put to sleep. And this would cause them to have wild dreams. And while they were sleeping, uh, non-venomous snakes would be released throughout the, dun- the dungeon, literally hundreds of them. These snakes would slither over their bodies, and they believed that the snakes were communicating to them, uh, the serpents were communicating to them through their dreams. And when they would wake up, they would go and tell an occult physician what they dreamed about, and those, that occult physician would then determine what their healing should be and wrote them a prescription. I'm telling you guys, this is, this is total wickedness, witchcraft, Satan ruled that city. Pergamum was a hotbed for satanic activity. Nowhere else in the scriptures do you hear of a city called where Satan lives, except this one place by Jesus Christ himself. It was a place where people called upon false gods, idols. Please understand that behind every idol is a demon spirit, always. It's not just some statue. 
Christians were put to death on this altar of Pergamum because of their faith in Jesus, and they would do it as an incense to the demons. Progress, wealth, culture, education, it does not make a city better necessarily. It doesn't. Just like today. I care about those things. But I'm telling you guys, our progress and our wealth and our culture does not make us better when we allow in the darkness into our culture. Everything that I'm sharing with you intertwines political, economic, demonic, religion. Don't forget this. This is in the book of Revelation for a reason. It's for us today. It also says that this is the place where Satan has his throne. Not just the place, the city where Satan dwells, but Satan has his throne there. Again, we hear this nowhere else in the scriptures except this place. That's found in verse number 13 to go back and take a look at that. What is Satan's throne? Well, the throne, any kind of a throne, you, you, looking at this, this word, this is a, a private chair that's given to the master of the house. Now, where was this? Well, it's without doubt, this was what was called the Pergamum altar. This is the place where Antipas lost his life. The Pergamum altar is deeply satanic. Um, The sacrifices there were even believed to be offered up to the Nephilim, to giants, and, and, uh, and this brazen bull sat on top of this altar where they would sacrifice any and all political dissidents. It was adorned with a beast and a dragon and a serpent. This is Satan's throne, the Pergamum altar. The Pergamum altar was later on destroyed by Christians, but... In the late 1800s, German archaeologists discovered it. They dismantled it piece by piece and took it back to Berlin, Germany, and began a long restoration of the Pergamum altar, which from this point on, I'm not even going to call it that. I'm going to use Jesus' word, the throne of Satan. And in Berlin, Germany, about 100 years ago, it was completed. Actually, it was finished in the year 1930. One of the first persons to come and visit it was a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. Uh, it was a huge inspiration to him and was a huge imp- inspiration to Germany's National Socialist Party. You see, he saw this as a mystical source of occult power, and he saw this also as a way of tapping into this master race of the Nephilim, of, of these giants. This exists today in what's called the Pergamum Museum, which is on an island in Berlin. Also there, we'll find the Ishtar Gate from ancient Babylon and a recreation of Nebuchadnezzar's throne room. I'm telling you guys, evil, evil, wicked stuff is there. Now, please understand, Satan knows what he's doing. His throne has been rebuilt piece by piece. This is not about cool works of art. I'm telling you guys, it's deeply demonic. How do you know? You are a believer. You can ask God for something called, it's a gift of the spirit. It's called discerning of spirits. You ask God for that, he will give you discerning of spirits. 
Read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. Hitler recreated the throne of Satan himself then. He was so inspired by it, he wanted a huge outdoor version of it. So he recreated this in a city by the name of Nuremberg. Any of you guys learn about that? Have you seen the speeches that are given on this grand stage? That is it. Hitler is actually speaking from on top of his own version of the throne of Satan. This actually became the central feature of the National Socialist Party. And from the top of his version of this where once would have stood the bronze bull, he then offered what's, what's known as in history as the final solution which was eventually sending up the smoke of burning bodies of Jews, Christian pastors, and political dissidents. Nothing has changed, my friend. Fast forward to the year 2008. The throne of Satan was again recreated in the United States and in, in, uh, in Vesco Field in Denver, Colorado. It was lauded by the secular press. Oh, you can read all about it. CNN tells you a whole lot about it. It's a beautiful cultural display of art. And the former president, Barack Obama, built this throne of Satan to deliver his acceptance speech to the Democratic Party. What is with this fascination with the throne of Satan where the burning bodies of Christians were offered as incense to demons? I don't know. Only God knows. But I'll tell you this much. Symbols mean things. This is where you ask God for discernment, okay? This all intertwines political, economic, and demonic religion. This is in the book of Revelation for a reason. There's, a, there's something else, though, that you've got to take a look at. Because all this, this all fits together. This is one picture here. There's the talk about Balaam and, and uh, Balak. What is that about? Well, ultimately, it's about witchcraft and entertaining demons in the occult, in verse 14, it talks about this. I'll just tell you a little bit about Balaam. Uh, there's a story about him in the book of Numbers, and what he wanted to do is he wanted to break down the power of God's people. So he indirectly attacked their morale by, by, by encouraging them ultimately to participate in forbidden acts, things that were forbidden by the scriptures, sexual deviance, eating pagan food that involved idol worship, and Balaam's fundamental, I'm not going to get into it, several chapters in the book of Numbers, you can read about it yourself, but Balaam's fundamental premise was this. The law of Moses is too difficult. You need to live a little. You need to be free. You need to express yourself. Look, all these other people are having a great time. You, need, you, have, you must satisfy your own needs, and there are great ways to go about doing this. And this was actually a seductive lure into the occult. Today, there's a seductive lure into the occult that is in the church. Why did Jesus address this to the church? Why is it there for us to see today for an end-of-time church? It's because there is a seductive lure into the occult in the church today. 60% of Christians embrace what's called New Age doctrine. Did you know that? This involves astrology, reincarnation. It involves seeking spiritual energy from trees and mountains, and all of this stuff is forbidden in the scriptures, my friend. Many Christians are innocently practicing the occult. I'll just expose it. That's what I told you I was going to do today. Zodiac, horoscope, astral projection, lucid dreaming, 
channeling, where you let a demon speak through you as if it's like an old relative. Crystals and divination, <clears throat> energy healing, Reiki, Chi, hypnosis, trances, casting of spells, Ouija boards, past life reincarnation and regression, spirit animals, tarot cards, which are now being marketed to children, universe and mother nature worship, universalism, which is disguised as coexist, which says everybody gets to heaven, but I'm sorry, the the scriptures say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to heaven through him. Spirits, sometimes Christians recently have been engaging with with what is uh, called spirit guides through meditation. This involves talking to people from the past and listening to them and engaging even with what they call guardian angels. Listen to me clearly, you should only talk to gods. Don't talk to angels or spirits. The Bible calls those familiar spirits which appear to you. And the Bible even says Satan himself will even disguise him as an, himself as an angel of light. Don't do that. Talk to God. The law of attraction. Oh. That's, that's, that's actually a spirit of control. We'll deal with that in another message. But it's where prayer is replaced with positive thoughts where you become God. The demonic doctrine of follow your heart, create your own truth, that's actually occult. I'm sorry. It is. No, I'm not sorry. I'm telling you the truth. That's where you decide what your truth is. But please understand this. Jesus Christ is the truth, the way, the life. And the scriptures also say that the heart is deceitful among all, above all things. Now, these demonic occult doctrines... They actually say the same thing as Marxist religion, which is God is not personal. He's just a force. Man's destiny is to be godlike. There's nothing wrong with us. The only problem with us is we are thinking wrong. Evil is fake. There is no right. There is no wrong. Truth is all relative. Humanity has evolved to a higher level. We need to turn from ignorance. Nothing about turning from sin. There's a future time of world peace with one government when one religion will arrive. Some of you need to study these kinds of things. This is a great book. It was written a few years ago by Derek Prince called Rules for Engagement if you want to understand what's really hap- what really goes on behind the scenes with darkness and, and uh, witchcraft. Yesterday, this is reported in our own United States media. There was a self-proclaimed Marxist who describes himself as a transsexual Satanist anarchist who has now won the Republican nomination for the sheriff in Cheshire County, New Hampshire. You want to hear what this person's saying? They're just putting it out there. Right now, guys, it is so clear, light and dark. Spirit of discernment. Wake up. He ran with the slogan of F the police. He says, I'm running for sheriff because I oppose the system. The system that let you down is allowing me a freak, these are his words, a freaking transsexual Satanist anarchist to be your sheriff candidate, and it's the system that I'm attacking. I'm sorry, I know it hurts to hear, but your system is a lie. The entire thing is a lie. It's broken from beginning to end, and my existence as your sheriff candidate is merely how this reality is being now thrown into your face. Demezzo said that his victory in this primary was an argument for anarchy. And he wrote these words, sweet Satan, 
how can you not be an anarchist? Is that in your face enough? And for those of you who've written me and saying this is all about Republicans, you are so messed up. That's your Republican candidate. I'm talking about a religion that works with politics, that works with all types of demonic activity and economic systems that destroys. I don't care about a political party. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? So get over it. Wake up, church. This is in your face. Jesus said, whoever has ears, come on. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. All of this intertwines. All of it does. Oh, let's jump into the Nicolaitans. We've got to. It's there. What they are, (laughs) these are hybrid Christians, we know what hybrids are, right? It's like, which one is it? Is it electric? Is it gas? I don't know. I don't know. Hybrid Christians, that's my terminology. It means weak and literally of the world. Jesus said he hated the doctrines of the Nicolaitans that was in the church. He hated their way of thinking, not the people. He hated what they were doing for perpetuating this stuff within the church. Their doctrine was this. Their doctrine was you can basically live in two different worlds at the same time. You can be worldly according to the culture and the systems of the world, and you can be godly at the same time. It was all about being open-minded. We're very cultured. We don't really care about sound scriptural doctrine. We just want to all get along. And they taught this, that basically, if you kind of act more like the world and do the things that the other people are doing, then they're not going to be as resentful toward you. Ultimately, it's about this thing called inclusiveness and compromise. It's all called tolerance in the name of love. We love everyone. We don't want to offend anyone, so we're just going to all get along. I'll do the stuff that you do, too. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is also alive and well in the church today, and all of this intertwines political, economic, demonic, religion. This is in the book of Revelation for a reason. And it says that Jesus is going to have the final word with those who are engaged in worldly practices. I'll read verse 16 to you again. It says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Wait a minute. I will soon come to you That's the church. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He will use his sword against them, the people who are engaging in all these practices that I've just listed here. It all fits together. It's interesting because this is actually the third occurrence of this verbiage in today's passages that I've read. So therefore, the sword is a huge concept in understanding what Jesus is saying to the churches. The Greek word sword meant is the uh, Greek term romphea, which was a large, broad sword that had to be used with two hands. It was perfect for slashing, had a long wooden hilt, and, uh, and the governors in Pergamum, they had something called the right 
of the sword, which meant they have the power to carry out capital punishment whenever they wanted. But what the government was doing is the government was abusing this power and they were using this power to persecute, persecute Christians because those Christians posed a threat to their form of worship and their worldview. So what they would say is their sword has the final word. So when you execute a person, not necessarily by a sword, but in the bull, and that goes up as an incense to their false gods, then they're saying we have the final word. But what Jesus is saying, he's reminding the church, no, 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 they don't have the final word. I have the final word. I have the ultimate power of judgment, and that power of judgment is in my hands. But he said, if individuals, that's the them, not the whole church, but he says if individuals within the church don't repent, then they're going to have to deal with the sword of the Lord. Hey guys, we have to be distinct and unique. We need to stand out in culture, not with brashness, but with love. I am here today to warn Christians to have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to repent of worldly practices, the kind that was seen in the church of Pergamum. Now, he goes to wrap it up and he talks about two different things that are seen, <laughs> that are found, that are, that are rewards to those who do this. First one is hidden manna. Uh, look at this, verse 17, it says, to the one who is victorious. That means to the one who overcomes the world. That's what that means. Does that, you want that to be you, right? Me too. I will give some of the hidden manna. What is this? Manna was literally real food from angels that fell from heaven on the children of Israel each morning for 40 years in the wilderness, and it supplied them supernatural sustenance. They were able to keep going even in a land of drought while they were in the desert. What Jesus is saying here is that people who choose, hey, church, you, church, when you choose to overcome the world, you will be allowed to partake in this hidden manna. When you live a life of repentance from worldly practices, you become an overcomer and your needs are going to be taken care of. That's your reward. Isaiah 46, 4 says this. It says, I am he who sustains you. I have made you and I will carry you and I will sustain you and I will rescue you. That is a promise from God to you. Those of you who feel like you just can't go another step, you're drained, the stress of life of 2020 is too much, I want to let you know you can be an overcomer and you will be supernaturally sustained. It is a promise. God's not going to leave you hanging and I want you to be encouraged by that. The second reward he talks about is a white stone. This is a deep honored friendship with God. Verse 17 says, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Again, rather cryptic, but let me just tell you this. The white stone uh, was known as the Tessera, and it was given to victors and overcomers in that culture. In Pergamum, they knew exactly what this meant. It only went to people who deserved special honor. It could be then used as admissions to banquets of honor, 
And it also meant that you had a close friendship bond as close as a family member with a significant person. So what, what they would do is they would engrave the name of the significant person who was presenting the stone as, a, as that ultimate friendship contract. It was, that's where we get this, it's written in stone. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm going to write in stone here for you. And it says, you're, you're going to get to take on his name. It's a new name. It's a new identity. It's the name of Christ that becomes our name. Overcomers actually get to be co-heirs with Christ. You inherit what he has. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song in church that said, there's a new name written down in glory. So you old timers know that song. And it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Jesus said he's going to give us his name, which will be our new name, access to all of his goodness, access to his friendship and his deep and a deep relationship with him, being an heir of the kingdom with him. And it's only for those who overcome. I want to be an overcomer. I want, I want that. I want that. I'll, I am willing to live in the culture, but I will not live of the culture. My final challenge to you in your plight to be overcomers is repent, forsake worldly practices, whether it's involvement in any type of the occult, lust for power, witchcraft, hybrid Christianity, fear of persecution, demonic systems, whatever it is, I challenge you, overcome the world. He overcame it. He gives us the power to do so as well. Will you hear what the Spirit says to the church? All across this room, will you just get into a position of prayer? Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to us. God, I pray that you will take the words that I so carefully chose to share today and you will tailor those for each individual, what they need to hear. God, I, I, I want this church to be overcomers. Lord, your word said that preachers, teachers, we're going to be judged more harshly than anyone else because we have to share what you show us. And I did, God. So, Lord, I, I just pray that I will be an overcomer. I pray that for me. I pray that for everyone who hears these words as well. Let us be overcomers overcoming this world in these end of time days that we're walking through. If you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you're not in relationship with Jesus, I'm going to challenge you right now to make the decision to follow Christ. Even in this room with every head bowed and eyes closed, focus on the presence of God. If, if, if there's sin in your life, you're, you're, you would not be ready to meet Jesus. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond simply by lifting your hand. That lets me know how way I can lock my faith in with you. Would you do that? Would you say, Pastor, that's me. I need Jesus in my life. Lift your hand for me so I can see it because I want to pray with you today. If you're at home, if you're at home, you're in your car and that's you, I want you to pray this prayer with me also. Anyone who's in this room praying this prayer with me, mean it from the bottom of your heart. Congregation, will you just say these words? Repeat them after me. Repeat them after me at home as well. Dear Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. I choose to be a person who respects you, who reveres you, 
and I repent of my sin. I turn from it. I'm not going back to it. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. Like I'll cross this room for you to stand, please, at this time. Are you guys overcomers? Are you overcomers? do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against demonic forces of hell. They are alive and well within the culture, but they do not have to be alive and well within the church. That's why I preach this. We must be different. We must be called out. We must operate in the life, love, and power of God. Will you right now, just where you're standing, will you just offer a prayer of confession of the Lord? Any type of practice, any type of occult or witchcraft, any type of playing with hell, living with one foot in and one foot out, would you just confess it to the Lord right now and say, God, forgive me. And the Bible says repent. He says repent, that means turn. Just ask God to forgive you with your own words right now. I I can't put the words in your mouth because you know what they are. Just whisper to God right now. Say, God, forgive me. I repent. I turn. I choose to be an overcomer. I choose to be an overcomer. I choose to be an overcomer. Have you discovered your street of influence? Whether it be family, government, business, arts and entertainment, faith, health and vitality, or education, head over to culturalstreets.com and discover your street today.